Hello and welcome to the Writer's Cookbook Podcast. I'm Christina Adams. And I'm Ellie Betts. And we're serving you with a weekly slice of writing advice. This week we're going to be talking about all of the ingredients that you need to write great characters. Yeah, there are some things that you need to write really great characters that on the surface have nothing to do with writing at all. But then when you start to dig deeper, you realise that they have everything to do with writing great characters how intriguing okay now i've got to know let's go okay so how would you define a good character so to me a good character is someone who's interesting three-dimensional realistic believable and relatable those all sound very important I definitely think my favorite characters have those but I noticed that you don't say likable no because someone that everyone likes isn't believable or likable because you can overdose on sugar you know no one is that perfect no one relates to Mary Poppins They relate to the kids and the family that she helps in the Disney version. I mean, I'm not referring to the books. Yeah, I mean, I've met people in real life who are overly sweet and likable. And honestly, it just turns you off, I think. Yeah, it's jarring. It's really (laughs) jarring. jarring, And it kind of makes you wonder what's actually going on. Yeah, it feels disingenuous, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Why do interesting characters matter, though? So you have to spend a lot of time with them, right? And you want to enjoy that time? The more interesting your characters are for you to write, they're also going to be more interesting for your characters to read. And that's one of the key things that will keep them turning the page. But not only that, the more interesting and three-dimensional they are, the more you can do with them when it comes to actually writing. Okay, I guess that that makes sense to me. That's logical. Because if you don't connect with your character, your audience isn't going to either, right? No, definitely not. Readers will do that for you based on their own experiences. So you kind of need to be open-minded when you approach it. One of the examples that always stands out to me is Eat, Pray, Love by Elizabeth Gilbert. I haven't read it, but I've read Big Magic. And in Big Magic, she talks about this woman who came up to her her book signing. At this book signing, she talks about how much she connected with Elizabeth Gilbert's leaving an abusive relationship. And she said in the book, you know, my husband wasn't abusive, he was just an arsehole. But this woman had projected her own experiences onto what Elizabeth had written. At the end of the day, you know, once you've put something out there, you have no control over how other people interpret it. That's really interesting. But it makes sense. I mean, you don't want those characters who are perfect, who are, you know, flawless in every way. You want characters who are normal because we're normal. You know, it makes Mm -hmm. characters more universal. If they're more normal like we are, it's more accessible. It's... I guess I would say it's a a better way to welcome reader into the story. Yeah. So you think about Gilmore Girls, for example, you've got Rory and Lorelai who do have very specific character traits. You know, Rory is kind of the bookworm. Lorelai is very headstrong and tenacious and slightly narcissistic. But it's often the side characters from Stars Hollow that people remember and often end up liking more because they've got the quirkier traits. But you need the universality of those main characters. And if you talk about the show to most fans of the show, 
they usually relate to Lorelai or Rory or both. Absolutely. I really admire Lorelai, actually. And I just love her I don't give a fuck attitude, basically. She does what's best for her kid and what's best for her, you know, above all all else, but not necessarily what she should be doing, in quotes, according to other people. Yeah, totally. And that was quite rare when it first came out in the early 2000s. And I think it's easy to forget that 20 years later. But it's like, (laughs) yeah, I know it makes you feel old, doesn't it? But then (laughs) then when I talk about how Charmed came out in 1998, (laughs) that's even worse. (laughs) Yeah. But the beauty of early Charmed was the fact that it was a bit like the Spice Girls. Everyone related to at least one of them. Part of its success was that it happened to be about women and sisters first. Then it was about witches. So people really related to this human side of it. And the fantasy was almost secondary to the reality, which helped to ground the show much more than some of the others at the time, because back then you'd got things like Xena and Hercules, which were massive. But when shows now, like the remake of Charmed, try to emulate the success of the original, it still ends up being about the fantasy first and the reality slash humanity of it second. So it doesn't quite appeal to the same audience. True, Charmed is unique and fantastic in so many ways mm-hmm. when I was M- minus it, season eight we will forget season eight <laughs> happened we will never discuss season eight ever again please don't mention billy to me if you're a fan of the show that is you all you brought I it up i didn't say anything <laughs> never again i just want to get that out there we do not discuss season eight it didn't happen mm-hmm. but you're right i mean when i was watching it i more closely related to piper because she's that maternal figure in terms of the sisters not that I have kids but I do have a tendency to slightly mother people around me uh I just love you so much I just want to look after you Uh, (laughs) (laughs) and so I get that vibe with Piper and I I always really admired her and she had some of the coolest powers to be fair they were pretty cool powers but I have to say I did connect with Prue the most and when I was younger I was almost in denial of it because I saw her as this bossy character that no one liked and then they killed her off and I was like oh no way more page she's way more fun and I really like her cool style and stuff but now I look back and I'm like no I've kind of always been a pro I was just in denial (laughs) even my friends at the time said it you know I love how take charge Rue is how intelligent she is and so let's be serious diehard fans watch it back and know the early seasons are the best well I mean there is that I love that you just channeled your inner Prue to become the badass you are today thank you I have weirdly (laughs) noticed I still make fashion choices based on charmed which shows how influential that show was on me when I was like 10 (laughs) it's embarrassing (laughs) but I mean what if someone was to write a main character that doesn't have any of those universal traits so it obviously becomes much harder for readers to connect with them It's not impossible. I'm not saying it's impossible, but there needs to be some sort of common ground between your main character and your audience, which is why knowing your genre and who you're writing for is really, really important. You know, particularly in genres like romance or women's fiction, anything that's really character driven, those traits are super, super important. And I know people won't like me referencing these things, but those kind of universal traits are part of why Twilight and Fifty Shades were so popular when they were. The main character starts off in a very universal way in a situation that a lot of women and people who don't identify as women can 
relate to and then they go on to become part of these vivid worlds and it is almost then regardless of what you think about these it is a kind of expression of fantasy absolutely it's a huge technique used in fantasy as well and one that I may or may not be using myself uh but whether or not you're a fan of those examples that use it you can appreciate what they've done to make fantasy and erotica more mainstream it makes it more accessible yeah exactly and we're not here to talk about the writing quality we're analyzing the popularity and what resonated with readers here we need to understand those things even if those particular pieces aren't our cup of tea so that we can work out how to emulate that success ourselves absolutely but do we have to read them No, not at all. (laughs) You don't have to read something to understand it. You just have to study what other people have said and kind of maybe read passages occasionally. I tend to know a lot about pop culture, but if you say to me, have you seen XYZ film? I'd be like, no, but I could probably give you some random trivia about it. There's plenty of stuff out there. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's probably a million and one articles on Fifty Shades of Grey from when it came out to sort of looking back at it and the impact it had and the wildly inappropriate things in it but where (laughs) would you say is a good place to start for that kind of information? So obviously the internet it's a gold mine right you're much better to look at reader reviews than critic reviews though because if you want critical acclaim that's fine look at those but what critics think can often be vastly different to what readers think. And in the indie publishing world, which being brutally honest, most critics still ignore, critic reviews are becoming less and less important. If you think about the film Mamma Mia, that came out like 2008, I think. That was one of the highest grossing films in the UK for a really long time. It got slaughtered by critics and it still made a ridiculous amount of money. No, I really enjoyed that. I didn't think I would. It's not my sort of thing, but damn, it's a good movie. It's a really good comfort (laughs) film. You know, I I really like watching the first one and I find like the dance moves and stuff painful. And if I do have my analytical brain geared in, I find it harder to enjoy. But if I'm just watching a film for the sake of watching a film, which is very difficult for my brain to do, I can just appreciate it for the fun and lighthearted attitude that it has and that it embraces that and I think some people can be very afraid of embracing something more lighthearted. So what we're saying here is uh, stuff the critics but if we were to go to places like Goodreads or Twitter or even Reddit I guess we could find a lot more people's opinions on them that we can we can use. Yeah, there's definitely a place for critic reviews if you want to improve your own analysis of things. Are you saying we can't say stuff the critics on this podcast? I'm not saying that. (laughs) I'm saying there is a place for it. But when it comes to readers, you'll probably get more out of it because they come at it from different different places. Critics will analyze things from a more technical perspective, whereas readers and viewers will come at it from a more emotional perspective and critics forget how to be emotional sometimes and readers forget to be logical so it's very rare to be able to view things from both perspectives and that's definitely a skill that I think all writers should have for their own work and other people's because that's one of the best ways to grow that makes sense the internet is once again proving invaluable exactly you know there are loads of good reads groups twitter hashtags and subreddits for just about everything and goodreads reviews can be really good as well i remember um i read a book a few years ago and i think it's one of the only ones i've ever left a review for and i was like 
technically speaking, this book is not the best thing I've ever read, but I've got to give it five stars because I loved it so much. And I just, I had this like inner conflict about the book because I loved it on an emotional level. But the actual editor in me is going, they need to fix this and they need to fix this. <laughs> but I didn't care because I liked the main character so much. Goes to show. So we can look up this information on the internet and don't actually have to read any books, which is kind of how I operated when I was doing my BA, which explains kind of why I didn't do so well. But the technique is valid for character dev, so we're okay. I mean, at least you learned your lesson. We can only hope. <laughs> Just soon find out. At the end of the day, though, the more research you do, the better it's going to be for you. It's going to make your writing process easier. It's going to make your characters more three-dimensional. And it's going to be a better experience for your reader. Absolutely. I've read quite a few good books on characters. There's one in particular that is a favorite of mine. It's called How to Write Believable Characters by Christina Adams. Have you heard of it? <laughs> no, I've never heard of it. <laughs> you should pick it up uh in it you talk about why it's detrimental to use phrases like heroes and villains or protagonists and antagonists can you explain to our lovely listeners why you think that is the reasoning is that when we hear words like villain or antagonist we automatically think of someone who is bad so it makes it much harder to write them as well-rounded and also when we're actually writing about them to empathize with them but even the most evil of people can have a softer side that's brought out by the right people. I like that idea. Like Joe in You, when he he ha has a thing about helping his neighbour kid, doesn't he, in season one? Yeah, the kid wasn't actually in the book. And they added him into the TV version to make Joe more likeable and add a bit more depth to him. Little did they realise everyone would end up having a creepy crush on him. <laughs> yeah, that still wears me out. The writers yeah. didn't expect that or intend for that at all it really surprised them but it happens a lot I think like that whole I can change a bad boy kind of attitude yeah I think it's projection of some sort probably it's unrealistic but then all romance is fantasy on some level definitely people fulfilling fantasies no matter how weird and wonderful they may be <laughs> exactly it's why rock star romances and paranormal romances are so popular. For example, everyone has their romantic fantasies that they can't fulfill in real life. So books help them to do that. And not even just in romance, I don't think. I think in multiple different genres, people are able to fill out those kind of fantasies. Particularly if the reader can really relate to your main character, either through personality trait or their starting situation. It gives them that opportunity to almost imagine themselves as the main character, doesn't it? Which can be great fun. Yeah, 100%. You know, the hero's journey is popular because the hero starts off with a very boring, humdrum life and is reluctant to upset the status quo. Everyone can relate to that. Mm, definitely. I want someone to upset my status quo. Preferably by sending, you know, 12 dwarves to my doorstep and a wizard. Every character goes on a journey sometimes like The Hobbit, a physical journey, sometimes not as physical, but it will develop during the course of the story. Why do characters have to go on a journey? And is this always external? It's definitely not always external. In a lot of my books, it's not, for example. Sometimes the story is just an emotional journey, or it is a combination of the two. One is kind of a side effect of the other. But all characters change between the first page and the last page. 
to some degree. It gives the reader a reason to keep going, even if they know what's going to happen next. They don't know how it's going to happen. Yeah. And this is your character arc, which is what we will cover next week. So stay tuned for that. Character arcs, as much as I love them, though, are just one of the ways you can make your characters more three-dimensional. This is true. Arcs are very important. I'm very excited about next week's episode. What other ways can we make our characters more three-dimensional? So one example I like to give is giving your character an interesting hobby. So maybe you've got a granny who's like a really hardcore rock star or you've got this really like intense rocker and he unwinds by knitting. I mean, what a great image of like this punk rocker with his Mohican and he's sitting there and he's knitting like a pink flanky or something. (laughs) That's That's great. But that's immediately three dimensional just from that image, right? And the other obvious example is to add a dark side to a seemingly good person and show those different dimensions by changing how they interact with different people. I like that. That's really interesting. That is a technique I'm currently using in my um, urban fantasy story that I told you about. I have my main character, Alex, and she reconnects with her dad, which is something she's always really craved, something she's always felt was missing from her life. But it turns out her dad's actually just using her to steal her power. What a dick. I know, right? <laughs> but at the but same really time, fun I, to write. I love that. I absolutely love that. Because like you say, it is more fun to write because you've got dimensions to Alex mm. and also to her dad already. I might have just spoiled this because it doesn't come out to like book two or three. So for anyone that's going to read my work, just forget this conversation. I mean, to be fair, <laughs> like this is coming out in January 2021. So there's plenty of time for people to forget that they've heard this when they come to read it. True. Very true. Hopefully. Fingers crossed. (laughs) One of my other favourite examples is This Is Us. And it's not massively popular in the UK. It's massive in the US, but it's just hardly anyone in the UK I know who's seen it. But I love that it shows different families over different generations, different times. It incorporates different races, different countries. And you really get a three-dimensional perspective of what these people have gone through and how they've passed influences the present and also the future and how everything ties together it's very very intricate but very well done and one one of the reasons I'm so attached to that show is that the first episode actually made me cry I didn't cry very much but the first episode of that I was so emotionally attached to it made me cry and I don't know if it helped that it had Milo Vettamelia and Mandy Morin who I knew from other things and I've obviously followed Milo from Gilmore Girls and stuff but yeah it just really got to me on an emotional level and I thought wow if a show is going this deep in episode one I need more. I think that's interesting the Dresden Files books can be quite intricate in terms of how your past can impact you and different things like that particularly in sort of like family dynamics like you mentioned you can you see different characters that come from quite a variety of different family backgrounds and you can see the impact that has on them not necessarily the defining feature, you know, it's not a treatise on how family impacts your future, but it is impactful. And I think those kind of things do come across really well in Dresden Files, especially if you keep reading through them. Is that a hint? That's a hint. You need to keep reading through them. <laughs> not that yeah, I'm going to peer pressure you to read Dresden Files or anything, but um, read Dresden Files. You realise I will return the favour with Gone Girl if you keep doing it with Dresden Files. <laughs> and I'll keep making Gone Girl references. We're just bullying each other to read books at this point then, yeah? (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. So on to Gone Girl. Yes. 
the infamous. Yes. Um, I love using Gone Girl as an example. I feel like I need to reread it so I can pick even more stuff out of it. So anyone who has read the book or seen the film will be aware of Amy Dunn's Cool Girl speech. I remember when it first came out, a lot of people were quoting it and saying how amazing it is and how relatable it is. And for anyone who isn't aware of it, it's basically the main character, Amy, talking about how she had to change herself to suit society and how she hated doing that. She hated herself. She hated that society expected this of her. And it was just her offloading all of this anger. And the anger was really tangible but also very real, you know, what she was saying was so relatable to thousands of women. Yeah, I mean, I haven't actually read Gone Girl, as you know, but I have read that speech and it's really amazing. It's really impactful. I was reading actually Roxane Gay's book, Bad Feminist. Uh, In there, she talks in one chapter about unlikable characters in fiction. I did a little quotation mark on unlikable there for anyone who's not watching us. And suggests, Roxanne Gay suggests that perhaps it's not that these women are unlikable per se, it's that these women are refusing to pretend to be someone that society wants, that society is trying to force them to be. They're not pretending to fit into that mould that society and as the cool cool girl speech puts it as a lot of men want and that they're themselves you know more honestly themselves either through a desire to embrace that up front or just an unwillingness to embrace the falsehood of what they supposed to be like to be liked which I think is a really interesting way of looking at it yeah I remember reading an interview with the author Gillian Flynn and her talking about how she had to really go to a dark place to write such anger and all these horrible, horrible things that these characters do to one another. And it was important for her to go there because if she hadn't, the book wouldn't have been as powerful. Imagine it's quite emotionally draining, though, to have to keep pulling that up. Oh, yeah, totally. She said that she would have to take a break before going to talk to her family after doing the writing session because she didn't want to take those emotions out on him well that's nice I'm glad she was able to make that consideration (laughs) Uh, you want to go to those dark places without taking them out on people around you obviously yeah but how can we do that if we've got that kind of dark emotion to write the biggest thing I would say is to not be afraid of those dark places you cannot have the positive emotions without the negative emotions you can't feel the extreme highs without the extreme lows you just kind of end up coasting then instead Mm, to rock the boat yeah exactly positive emotions mean much more if you have been through the negative yeah yeah definitely we have a friend actually who has a character who is angry and cold but our our lovely friend was afraid to express these emotions herself and I think you suggested to her to write like a dear ex letter expressing the anger you know you've got to sort of release that from inside of you to be able to embrace it properly I guess um and she found it really helpful she found it was she was able to overcome what was holding her character back or holding her back from fully embracing that side of the character and writing the character well yeah exactly and for anyone who doesn't know what a dear ex letter is it's basically you write a letter to some person that has hurt you in some way and you don't censor yourself you just word vomit onto the page and when you're done 
you either you know you rip it up or you set it on fire if it's physical set it on fire in a safe place I should add or you just not delete. inside <laughs> no not inside or you just delete the file and it can be very very cathartic especially if you are holding back because as we've said to write these really deep emotions you have to be not afraid of your emotions and also more importantly of what other people are going to think of you going to these really dark places I think Brett Easton Ellis had a similar thing when he was writing American Psycho yeah I worry for him a little bit that book is (laughs) messed up but it's not a reflection of him as a person it is a reflection of those places that he is allowing his mind to go to because he is comfortable and confident in himself. Mm. So a reflection of quite a good writer, I would say, being able to embrace that and, and fully enhance the character because they can go to that dark place, I think. Oh, totally, totally. So would you say there is something that we as writers need to understand to be able to write three-dimensional characters more successfully? Yeah, psychology. If you don't understand people, you can't understand characters that makes sense we're all slightly different depending on who we surround ourselves with or our past experiences with them or people like them can affect how we behave can't it yeah we all adapt our behavior quite often subconsciously so we don't even know we're doing it everything from the language you will use to our tone of voice to the way we move or don't move it all adds up i think it's important to to know at least a little bit about psychology and if people want to learn more about psychology there's plenty of stuff out there. You don't have to study at a degree level, I don't think, but there's lots of stuff on the internet, my secret favourite source, and there's lots of books about it too, if you can read books. Are there any in particular that you would recommend? Yes, well, I'd recommend Mindhunter by John Douglas. It's the nonfiction book that the Netflix show was based on, and it talks about his process putting together kind of the profile for serial killers. It's been disproven by some people now, but in terms of really understanding what makes people tick and what can lead to people going to these darker places in their mind, it's useful for that and also for understanding cause and effect. And the other one I would say is Difficult Mothers by Terry Apter. And I say that because it makes you realize how significant someone's upbringing is and also how it has positive And negative consequences, depending on what that person's relationship was with their mother. You know, it really depends on what you want to learn. But the main thing is understanding cause and effect. X trigger leads to Y behavior, which leads to Z consequence. You make it sound easy. But I guess it does make sense. I mean, someone who, I don't know, threw up on stage during Christmas play at school could later down the line end up having stage fright because every time they get up there, they're rethinking about all that embarrassment and replaying it in their heads. But then that leads to them not being able to sing like they want to maybe. And when they try to, maybe it goes as far as giving them a panic attack, I guess. Yeah, and then that's the premise of your story. Throwing up and panic attacks. The fact that it is someone who (laughs) wants to sing on stage but is afraid to do it. That makes more sense. Yeah, and their arc is then how they get over it. That's a much better story than throwing up and panic attacks. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there might have to be some of that to establish the fact that there is a problem there in the first place. Yeah, but the arc over the book then, like you say, is how they get over it or, I guess, how they don't get over it and the consequences of that. Exactly. 
I've noticed sometimes when a TV series, for instance, runs for a while or the writers change, things can change and become inconsistent sometimes. Or they insist on wrapping things up all neatly in a bow because it's the last in the series for whatever reason. But regardless of how they progress with the story, it can have consequences, like jumping massive sections of character development for them to get to who they were to who they need to be at the end doesn't look great no it really really doesn't i watched a tv show recently and i don't want to say what it is because it's a fairly recent final series but this character kind of started off as a bad boy who didn't want to commit and in the last few episodes he just lost all of that edge all of his agency and basically his entire arc revolved around begging his ex to get back with him the, the jump just didn't make sense to his character. And also he ended up being really flat compared to what he was in the seasons previously. That's really disappointing and quite frustrating as a reader or a watcher, obviously, because this was a TV show, to have to keep carrying on when you just get more and more annoyed. <laughs> yeah. How can we then, as the expert writers we all are and all our listeners are, avoid doing this? The simple answer is planning. When you plan in advance, it helps to work out all these character inconsistencies. If you're going to publish traditionally, it's harder because you can't guarantee that they will take up the full series. But when you publish yourself, you have the security in knowing you can publish no matter what happens with your books in terms of sales figures, number of downloads, etc. Because if you're self-publishing, you get to decide what's classed as a success and what's classed as a failure. And every other part of the creative process, yeah. There's a lot of pressure in traditional publishing that indie doesn't have, I think. And I have to say that aside from some books I got for Christmas, which I love, by the way, to all all my friends listening you're welcome <laughs> <laughs> I think I actually spend a lot more time and money on indie books recently they feel different the characters feel different to me no I agree I think character driven books do very well indie because a lot of the success of indie books comes from series and readers tend to stick with series because they love the characters or sometimes loathe them yeah that too one of my characters, Trinity Gold, she crops up in what happens in books and also the Hollywood gossip ones. And she creates one of the strongest emotional reactions out of all of my characters. And I have a lot of them. <laughs> Why is it Trinity then? What's so special about her? So in the early what happens in books, she very much sets out to destroy everyone. But Hollywood gossip is a prequel and you see a different side of her. And in her, the book from her point of view, Hollywood Nightmare, you get to understand her motivations and what's going on inside her head and that she's really just very, very broken. And thus that makes her feel a lot more three-dimensional to the reader. Yeah. I mean, when I created her, she was very different. But as I grew as a writer, I fleshed her out and it was important to me to make her more interesting to write and to read and also that readers didn't just see her in this very black and white way that clearly worked then whatever you did <laughs> I think so yeah I mean she's one of my favorite characters to write because there are so many sides to her and each side comes out in a different point in the what happens in and Hollywood gossip books I remember when Hollywood gossip came out readers were really really surprised that Trinity was unusually nice she was kind of the logical one compared to Tate, who's usually the nice character in what happens in books. And it threw them off to see this nice character as a total diva. 
and the character that they always saw as a villain being the nice one telling Tate to rein in her diva behaviours. That sounds like you managed to make both of the characters a lot more three-dimensional, actually. Did you face any backlash from your biggest fan readers to that decision? No, not at all. They, They were surprised, but they also loved it. It created a curiosity gap because they need to know how the characters from Hollywood Gossip turned into the characters from What Happens In because Hollywood Gossip starts about four years before What Happens in New York. Then they're begging for the next installment because they need to know what happens next. No pun intended. And slightly intended. (laughs) On that punny note, that is all we have time for for this episode. Yeah, don't forget to join us next time when we'll be talking more about character arts, what they are, why they matter, and how to write them, whatever your genre. Oh, I'm excited. I will see you next time. Bye.